0: Today we'll be talking about Global Paradox. Global Paradox has been a subject I've thought of for a long time. It was originally proposed by Nesbit, And uh, the idea is that small businesses um, produce, have a greater GDP than large businesses. So, if you take the sum of all the small businesses and you add it together it has a greater gdp than the large businesses now who does all the selling large businesses so like if you went out and tried to buy a car um, the innovations that are in the car are created by small businesses um, But the large businesses uh, have bought a lot of the innovations and incorporated it into the vehicle and uh, then they market and sell it. So um, and where you look at small businesses with 19 people or less, uh, they are producing 24 times the number of innovations. That a large business is, whereas you have, when you look at a large business. It has, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people, and the infrastructure is enormous. Um, but it's necessary in order for the processes to all work. So it takes a lot of uh, of additional development and research and proving and quality assurance to bring a product to market and so those type of functions uh, require lots of people so the innovation is the seed coming from the small business and then the implementation uh, and the enhancement necessary to bring the concept into production is uh, large business where it can support and sustain uh, the scalability of the product. So that becomes the global paradox is that uh, for large businesses to survive, they need to support small businesses. Small businesses need to be competitive and monopoly. Uh, type competition that will prevent innovations coming to market uh, will kill off small businesses, and that is a bad. Uh, that is how will have negative de- impacts on the economy. So, when we saw in 2008, there was a uh, there was concerns about whether or not small businesses were getting access to capital, uh, and it and it was more difficult for them to get access to capital, because uh, um, funds were not available, banks were not giving out loans. And so uh, the capital necessary to innovate uh, was beginning to dry up. But with Trump's administration, we see the support for small business and uh, deregulation. Those are things that uh, have been really helpful. and the global paradox survives because of um, when government interferes in business then they've gone too far What in the sense that if it becomes anti-competitive so in, um, businesses then are allowed to flourish when there's less government interference in business. And that's what Drucker um, was quoted to, to have said is that uh, the business basically uh, will continue to follow a self-interest pattern and it will uh, find market need and innovate. And that redistribution of wealth is a willful distribution of wealth because uh Old money will be invested in new uh, new ideas, creating new money. And so when you look at the disruptive pattern of technology, there are many companies uh, a decade ago that did not exist, which now have large market capitalizations exceeding $1 billion. And how could so much innovation uh, have displaced so much money. And that is because um, of the innovation that uh, causes a a distribution of money. And that's a wealth of nations. And that was the proof against the communist argument for a uh, centralized driven economy where there were uh, a brief acceleration of productivity through centralized planning, but then it tapered out and eventually uh, slowly began to diminish. And the reason why it slowly began to diminish is because innovation was not uh, creating new surges of growth. Whereas in a capitalistic um, economy, when there is innovation uh, that attracts capital investment and uh, then that causes increased awareness competitors then see profits and they begin to compete in that sector and more innovations and varieties uh, come to market of products and so we, you see the displacement. One example of that that's it, really quite clear is uh, telecom. So we saw Nokia was a strong leader a decade ago. Um, it had millions of devices. It still has millions of devices. But it was definitely the strongest leader. Uh, and then Ericsson. And then, uh, but slowly we saw the introduction of Samsung and LG. And both these companies were South Korean companies, and they began to innovate. Uh, I read a couple of books about MIT, and it said there was an ocean of Asian students, uh, whereas a a decade ago, there wasn't as many. And so um, the innovations were driving the young minds to come to some of the best schools in America and become educated and they're bringing back those ideas to South Korea and working for big companies like LG and Samsung and they were uh, at the same time Samsung was putting uh, different companies in San Diego or the San Jose area and uh Facilitating that growth and that infrastructure, and so today the leaders are Samsung and LG when it comes to uh, to telecom and to mobile devices. You see the old workhorses like uh, Motorola; they're still around. They haven't been uh, they haven't been displaced totally, and they continue to find their niche in IoT and uh, other uh, devices and they also still sell motorola chips inside of certain cell phones so but it's interesting when you look at how innovation distributes wealth is the products and features are appealing to the customer they like the the new products that are coming out, larger screens, more functionality. I remember probably th- three to four years ago, uh, listening to how Samsung had retina recognition, and uh, then in the just recently in uh, one of the iPhone releases that, that it has facial recognition but it didn't have retina recognition. So it's, it's real, real interesting to see the pattern of why innovation causes redistribution wealth, and that is because people, when they see a product they like, they get excited about it, they like the new functions and features, and they're willing to give up hard-earned cash acquire those products and services and the digital era of digital uh, makes that information more accessible and so there's a a more rapid way of uh, distributing this information to the consumer and as a result they can buy the products uh, quicker online they don't have to go to the store they can see the functions and features. They can go to YouTube and watch it demonstrate the products and features demonstrated. And so those are, are really powerful tools that help um, innovation accelerate and be distributed to the masses. And corporations also have large conferences where they go and see you know, highlights of the new products and services and uh, and it will be interesting as those channels, uh, which have been traditionally very closely tied to salesmen and the relationship they have to the salesman to the uh, customer, if more AI bots that are capable of natural language processing and interactive conversations will uh, help increase sales by companies and I can see that as a possible future as an AI salesman because you want to um, be able to ask certain questions about functions and features you want to, you want to know uh, price discounts you want to discuss um, some technical and some business and the AI agent should be able to answer all these questions. From database. Now, when I've seen the AI agents that are uh, used in call centers, I was surprised that they were fairly weak. They didn't seem to be able to answer questions as well as I thought they should. And uh, there are some companies like Live Labs that are building uh, interactive conversations, but they have a very complex code generator uh, that will parse the uh, question into a natural language semantic tree and then based on the actions and nouns it will It will then um, take that uh, information, and uh, it will uh, use that information to uh, um, it will use that information to write code that will um, uh, answer the question, and so. It uh, is a dynamic system. It has dynamic models that it uh, can uh, create and, and connect to other resources from. And uh, from that it uh, then will be able to uh, uh, will be able to produce uh, an answer. And so when you're talking with the, about the AI salesman, he could, if it was a query into the data, there needs to be a way for natural language to be able to access different pathways of the data. And then once that data is found, then to aggregate it, and present it in a way that's easily understandable to the consumer, and that can be d- done through data marts and pivot tables and uh, and the looking at potential ways for the customer to ask questions about the data, and uh, it can also. things like comparative like between time series where you're comparing one year against another or or one period of time against another so you take your data and move it into a atomic level meaning the the lowest level of granularity possible and then partition the data so that um, it can be segmented into different aggregations or it can be, the data can be found very quickly. Uh, and then you map the data. So you aggregation is map reducing. So you take that data uh, that you have found and reduce it together, down into uh, a certain level of aggregation. Uh, and then you can combine or merge the data together and, uh, and then find a logical pathway through the the data and then present that so that it's um, structured query language has been the preferred choice for for extracting information from the uh, data base and um, but it's uh, and it may still be the very best way to retrieve data but there are additional uh, new technologies that are are coming out, like GraphDB um, and Set uh, Elastic Search, which has been around for a little while, which uses set theory to extract information. But the technology that is the simplest and the most uh, uh, comprehensive, that can be, the parts can be composed into more advanced structures, will be. Um, will be the technology that's used by the developers. Well, so when we look at the, kind of like if you look at the conversation and how it's gone, we're looking at now mainly the major innovations are in technology and energy. And the reason why is because we're in a digital age, and things are changing faster. So we look at the you look at the rate in which legacy systems um, are expiring and being replaced with new, modern, cloud-based systems. Um, that trend will continue to become stronger, and so as more companies are moving to the cloud and moving their business structures to the cloud. they'll they'll begin to use more of the advanced technologies that um, the cloud provides. And as a result of that, there'll be a larger distribution of money that's now moving to cloud providers and uh, providers of the software that run companies. Um, And with the introduction of IoT, there's gonna be more collection of data into data lakes, which then facilitates the usage of uh, analytics to make sense of the data. And when you're looking at large queries now that are exceeding a billion rows and transforming the data into uh, signal, which is machine learning and AI. And so, uh, f- different features in that data are being analyzed and in real time are presenting signal or pattern conclusions that, um, have been observed and bringing attention to the, uh, customer. That is a powerful, powerful feature that has not totally been recognized yet. Um, When any data is collected real time, that is the most important data in the company. It is more important in even financials. And the reason why it's so important is that the data tells the company what is happening at that moment and uh, in that particular sector. And so that then uh, attracts the attention of the operation managers, the senior management, uh, and it unifies the whole co- corporation around that collection of data as, as uh, analytics began to present it in real-time dashboards and decisions are being made uh, dynamically. And so that kind of goes back to the idea of corporations that are run through automation uh, that are making adjustments to the operation parameters based on the goals of the senior management. Whereas where the implementation of those goals is done through automation, through uh, changing of parameters, you have hyper parameters. And, uh, and so the machine can write its own code uh, and then implement that code into processes. And that idea of, of a machine writing code and implementing it into processes and then letting those processes slowly evolve over time according to the parameters and needs of the, of the senior management is um, the future. Uh, machines writing code makes perfect sense it has to happen um because you need to have persistent memory and code is memory and then you'd also need to have consistency in the rules and uh, a way to measure the inputs against the outputs and that is unit testing and so the machine's unit test um and and, re, and reinforce learning on the code uh, can create an enhanced capability to meet company needs in near real time. Let's say if the machine could write code a thousand times faster than a, a group of human team counterparts and the processes were provable, meaning that they're rigorous, they could have uh, uh, proofs of the outcome, the interpretations of the context, the the functional specification, the user interfaces, all code generated by the machine, dynamic adjustments to preferences by the user, This would be a huge advantage because now we have machines writing code, the code is automated, the code is very complex um, and it is also extremely large. So your code base uh, and the functionality in the code could be uh, growing exponentially. And that's something that we can't really say from programming standpoint, that our code has been growing exponentially because there's a certain limit to human understanding of all the code modules. The classic line is no one person knows everything about the company and about all the processes that run the company. Yeah, programmers are required at any given time to learn those processes for a particular area well enough that it can impact uh, business process positive or negative and so um, it's it's a, an idea that uh, I think will will occur there will be natural language processing uh, there will be a super language that uh, I've talked about to some other programmers with where uh, the descriptions are more intuitive based but from those intuitions uh, they can build more abstract detail. The machine can build more abstract detail and uh, the UIs can be built. I think the first area for Uh, rapid innovation is the UI, so the machine writing code for the UI Uh, and it can be driven off of database design which would be data models and so as the data models um, are being designed either by human architect or machine architect they will be moldable and so, as we've talked about before, the interfaces will uh, be d- constantly changing. And the machine's interfaces will be exposed so that, uh, that uh, external, either machine-to-machine interface or human interface-to-machine will uh, be possible. And it'll be a constantly changing environment it's so difficult to change a database structure once you have class structures built on it and uh, that's one of the big problems i see with the way databases have been designed is that they don't uh, uh, readily change the data models i mean you can if you do a layering effect on your on your data and your objects and you do a lot of inheritance-like structures, uh, which is one of the pillars of object-oriented. If you change the base foundation, you affect uh, all those layers above, and that is a tremendous amount of work and so to refactor that. And so the machine has to be capable of refactoring the code, uh, changing and dynamically changing the, the layers that depend on it. And so it makes more sense to have the data driven by interface contracts or agreements than for the interfaces to be driven by uh, database changes. And so like for example if you wanted to add Uh, new relationships between the tables you could you should be able to build hubs and Connect the data or you should be able to modify uh, the data model and so I've been working through different ideas about Constraints or rules for how data models should be assembled one of which is that the parent model can only know about the child models in containers so if you have like a sales order it can only know about sales detail the sales detail does not know about the uh, sales order it only contains a id and so that would protect you against circular reference because you don't want a chicken and egg scenario starting which came first Otherwise, you could get a circular uh, reference in your code, and uh, and then and then you have a runaway process. You have uh, and so uh, there there is uh, there is those features that uh, we ha- you have in the in the code that uh, um, are. Um, not easily detectable, and by design, you can you can you can create it so that there's circular reference, and so that's that's dangerous. But going back to this global paradox, so we've talked about the innovations in code, which obviously, since I'm a programmer, I want to talk about that uh, machine learning, and the small businesses out there. There are a lot of startups, a lot in cybersecurity, a lot in uh, cloud-based technologies. Mobile, I think, is is going to become more popular. And where you have a lot of this Cambrian uh, explosion of code, lots of fragmentations of code. Um, there's a lot of sharing of fragments of code on Stack Overflow. Uh, there's a lot of technical books you can still buy to, to understand it. But in the era of, of reinforced learning, of of uh, deep AI, of natural language processing. The machine's ability to write code and the developer's ability to abstract concept and to create need to come together. And so that level of innovation will empower the smaller developer to do more work. And once that becomes a, a pattern, then the larger companies We'll see more innovations to solve many of the business processes that are uh, impacting companies every day. Uh, You're going to see more of a a trend towards moving more data to the employee, so that he can do or he or she can do their work, and uh, that that that's a very powerful pattern. So, in some, I've I've talked about the paradox, which is innovation occurs uh, by small business and resource occurs by larger business for mature models for marketing and sales and volume and uh, taking the product to production uh, at a scalable level. I've talked about the disruptive nature of technology and energy and one sector I haven't talked about is uh, the Role of hydrogen? I, you know, I, I do like low energy nuclear reaction technologies, but I don't see them innovating in a decentralized ways fast enough. I do see the possibility of hydrogen becoming a uh, alternative fuel source, just like natural gas. Natural gas has been a the darling child because of its availability, the abundance of its supply. There's trillions of cubic of feet of natural gas everywhere. Um, and so that technology is, or sorry, that uh, energy resource has been very popular for heating homes, uh, powering vehicles. But with the introduction of hydrogen, hydrogen can be another level of transformation. Natural gas can be transformed into hydrogen. And the Uh, hydrogen can be contained in carbon fiber tanks under high pressure and or they can be contained in a metal hydrate and through heat uh, the hydrogen is released. Either method, uh, one is probably going to be more preferred than the other. The metal hydrate is safer than the carbon fiber tank but it's more expensive. The carbon fiber tank is incredibly strong but uh, fear of uh, puncturing that tank uh, causes could cause uh, apprehension about its usage. But it seems to me that the the uh, carbon fiber tank is the preferred way to, to haul hydrogen around. Hydrogen puts back on the grid, so as you <clears throat> excess hydrogen can be converted into electricity, and the electricity. Can be put back on the grid. So, I like fuel cells better than uh, electric batteries. I think electric batteries are will eventually be a drain on the grid. It'll cause our electric prices to go up as as more uh, cars become electric and draw power. Our kilowatt uh, per hour cost will increase, and as a result, we're going to see that. If you had 25 million cars on the road that were electric, you would have to have uh, natural gas, uh, electric charge stations uh, become more available and then start consuming more electricity and natural gas. And then the natural gas would have to be moved uh, to those areas and the supply and demand of the natural gas fluctuations Uh, would have to be somehow kept even which that's one of the big problems with natural gas is that the 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 peak and loads and the non-peak loads are not even and so there will be big challenges there Um, whereas with hydrogen you could create that from uh, algae and it can also be created from solar uh, so there's solar cells, photosynthesis-like cells that can break up um, the hydrogen from the water and, and it's a cost-effective method of doing that, the sun cell. And if you had enough um, consumption of hydrogen, then there would be more decentralized production of hydrogen. And so There is an almost an unlimited amount of hydrogen on the Earth, and so that supply would be more advantageous than uh, the hydrocarbon method of producing hydrogen, where you have to break those high energy. uh, You have to use high energy or heat to break those covalent bonds to separate the hydrogen away from the oxygen. And uh, I, I so I like I like the hydrogen. I think it's a uh, it's a cool idea. Um, the storage of hydrogen is cannot be stored uh, too much because of its uh, rea- reaction to its environment. So if there's electric storm, hydrogen's very reactive. But I've seen YouTube's where they've they've stored hydrogen in thousand gallon tanks. And done it very safely. So they reform the hydrogen, pressurize it, and uh, store it in tanks. And then they uh, uh, use the hydrogen from the tanks to feed through a fuel cell and power the home. So hydrogen is a great storage mechanism for uh, grid. So, you know, I think more of the grid will, uh, as more people come onto the grid, and there's more consumption of electricity because uh, uh, more electronics and more digital and more logic that's being now automated uh, that uh, you'll see the need for hydrogen and and we saw some of this where corporations were using uh, hydrogen stacks to power their company you know in a clean environment Uh, so it was natural gas based so the natural gas was been being run through, uh, through uh, a high temperature but about 900 degrees or so and it was in power breaking apart the hydrogen going across the stack and uh, producing electricity but it was expensive and it's still expensive uh, and so if the innovations can make Bring down the fuel cell stack and the natural gas uh, combination with the fuel cell becomes more popular. Then we could see homes that are powered by fuel cell stacks, and and then homes would pay instead of to the electric company, they would pay to the natural gas, and so you'd see a shift away from maybe uh, hydroelectric or even coal fire or natural gas where you're losing lots of energy in the distribution over the line to uh, more decentralized production of electricity in the home. And uh, so you buy maybe, say, a $5,000 unit and connect that to your electrical gas and that would produce all the electricity for your home on demand and so uh if natural gas prices stay consistent and stable then that might be a better way uh, of creating your energy so home energy production may be a it definitely will be a trend i've been looking for micro turbines i haven't seen lots of that technology but uh, micro turbines for generating electricity also uh, are possible i know some hotels I've read about, have used microturbines where they use the natural gas to create uh, a micro turbine spin which generates uh, electricity for the hotel. And uh, they, so they, and, but those units are very, they're very large and so that you know, they, they would be not a cost-effective way for doing that uh, with a company. But... Uh, um, that uh, could definitely change in the future.